Cecily and I love supporting a small business with clean products. Pretty Little Light Candle Co. is just that, a true small business. She makes these candles from scratch at her house um, with soy wax and clean fragrance that is phthalate free so that you can burn these in your home and enjoy the ambience of a candle and the smell of a candle without worrying about your health. We appreciate that. We appreciate that she's a small business and does this with her family. And we're just thankful to have such a good company as a sponsor. So prettylittlelightcandleco.com is where you can go to check out her candles, buy some clean fragrance to burn in your house, and you can use code BOOMCLAP to save 20%. The A to Z of isms, transhumanism. Most of us would consider the end of the human race as a catastrophe. There are some, however, who will not only rejoice at it, but want to hasten the day it arrives. Transhumanists look forward to a future in which Homo sapiens is superseded by a better, smarter, fitter model, Humanity 2.0. Humans are in dire need of improvement. Any species that causes huge damage to our environment can't feed itself even though it has enough food and fights countless wars costing millions of lives must surely benefit from an intelligence upgrade. Our lifespans are short, our final years usually characterised by diminishing health and vitality, often accompanied by a drop-off in cognitive capacity. One in three people born in 2015 are expected to get dementia. Is this really the best we can hope for? Transhumanists think not. Ageing could be stopped and even reversed. Enhancements could dramatically raise our IQs and make us stronger and fitter. We might even be able to leave our fragile bodies behind and upload ourselves to computers, living forever in virtual worlds. Improving humanity through science and technology could radically change us. Such a new beginning would in effect be the end of humanity as we know it. Many transhumanists see this as not only desirable, but inevitable. The scientist and futurist Ray Kurzweil believes we are approaching what he calls the singularity, the point at which computers become smart enough to learn for themselves, after which they will rapidly become smarter and smarter. The future belongs to artificial intelligence. The only way for humanity to survive is to embrace it and become wholly or partially artificial ourselves. The thought of being replaced by a new form of humanity is bound to be unsettling. But transhumanists think we would be wrong to lament the end of humanity as we know it, when what replaces us would be so much better. It would be like wishing children never grew up or that Homo erectus never evolved into Homo sapiens. If the transhumanists are right, we could be one of the last generations of humans to roam the planet. Welcome to the Boom Clap Podcast. What you just heard was a little insight to transhumanism from a really sunny perspective. That was the BBC uh, publication that they put out, and it's kind of interesting, I would say. Uh, Cecily? Extremely. I found that really fascinating to listen to. I mean, just the the music in the background too. It's kind of that too. I loved it. Like, <laughs> like this is going to be great, happy. right? Yeah, this oh, is going to totally. be great. Mm-hmm. So we're talking to Steve Kim today. He is uh, from Apologetics Canada. He is the Alberta director for Apologetics Canada. And he puts together such 
a well-rounded perspective of transhumanism, what it is, can machines think? Um, I don't know. I just find him fascinating to listen to, extremely intelligent and informed on the topic, but he puts it all together in a way that we can understand and that um, hopefully you'll come away with a deeper understanding of this really obscure topic that a lot of people don't talk about, but it's really important to understand because it's definitely here and definitely coming down the pike for us. So before we get into that, don't forget to follow our podcast, subscribe to our podcast. That's how you get us in your uh, phone, in your app every week and, you know, just can listen to us automatically without having to go search us out. So don't forget to follow us, leave a review and also check us out at Boom Clap Podcast on Instagram. If you haven't, we have a new Instagram page, relatively new within the last month or so, uh, where we're kind of cataloging our episodes for you and uh, giving you a little more insight into thoughts from the episode every week. Also check us out at theboomclapcommunity.com where you can join for just as little as $2. You can join at whatever amount you feel comfortable. It's a way you can support us outside of the podcast, as well as just pick our brains a little more. We have monthly meetups where we meet via video chat. We have deeper discussions surrounding what we talked about on the podcast or things that you want to talk about, things that maybe you have questions on that we didn't cover on the podcast. We also send out weekly roundups with more insight and information into the episode of the week and things that we weren't able to get into on the podcast that are happening in the world. Uh, additionally, literary discussions that happen quarterly. So those are all things that you can get through the community at theboomclapcommunity.com. Let's get into the episode with Steve. Hey, Steve, we are so happy to have you on the podcast and to get into this uh, topic of transhumanism, which is super deep. And we were just talking before this and you asked me what got me interested in this topic. And I was like, well, I'm weird, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> I went on to describe it as I find transhumanism to be an obscure topic because nobody talks about it, but it's not obscure. It's very real. It's here. Mm -hmm. It's happening. Uh, the, the overarching people of the world that make big decisions for the little people of the world are very much onto this, right? And so right. Cecily and I are both really excited to get into this with you. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself and then please include what you were talking about before we hopped on, because it was so interesting yeah. explaining, um, you know, your South Korean background and just discomfort with overreaching government. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right into that, right? Yeah, okay, don't so that yeah, out. don't leave that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so my name is Steve. Um, I probably the most important thing that our listeners should know about me is that I'm an adopted son of God Most High, um, who saw in His good pleasure to extend to me not only amnesty, but uh, not only clemency, but also in His good pleasure saw fit to adopt me into His family. Uh, the family that bears the name of his son, Jesus. And so um, that just drives me bonkers just to think about the immensity of that. Because it's one thing to forgive uh, a rebel who committed high treason. It's a totally another thing to actually adopt him into his family to give me the inheritance of his kingdom. 
Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's that's the most important thing about me. Uh, I'm also a family man, husband to one, father to two. <laughs> um, I really like instant ramen noodles and video games. Uh, and I also <laughs> like reading about obscure and random things. <laughs> so yeah, I was born and raised in South Korea. And uh, my family moved to Canada when I was 14 years of age um, and kind of lived in the Vancouver area for the most of my life. About five years ago, moved to the Edmonton area because who uh, who doesn't love minus 40 degree weather? Um, I mean, not that, me personally. But. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I still question my sanity. Um, and for our American listeners, minus 40 is where Celsius and Fahrenheit meet. So mm-hmm. it's that cold. Anyway, um, what Rita was mentioning earlier uh, about, you know, my comfort or actually discomfort with government overreach is that, well, my family actually has a bit of a history. My family almost got shafted by both the communist side and the capitalist side. And the common theme is government overreach. And so my grandparents were born during the Japanese colonial period. Um, and, And then anybody who knows the sort of the history around that area in 1945, World War II ends, Japan surrenders after getting nuked by the United States. And so they pull out in August uh, of 1945. Now, at this point, there is something of a political power vacuum in Korea. And if you look at the map of Korea, it actually shares borders with then Soviet Union, just to the northeast, just a little bit. And, you know, of course, China is just on the other side, too. And so Soviet Union and the communist kind of influence moved in right away. Um, And, of course, the United States wasn't comfortable with that. And so they drew a line and said, don't come below the 38th parallel. Um, That's when the division started happening. Now, around this time, uh, there were a lot of these so-called people's trials happening throughout Korea. And it was basically a kangaroo court. All that it really consisted of was somebody being accused of exploiting the laborers, the workers, and that person gets dragged to this court, um, and there would be people inciting violence, basically. It's not even like, is this person guilty or not? It was more about how should we kill this guy? So my grandpa gets dragged to one of these. And so he gets sentenced to death, as the story is told to me, and as he is being escorted to the escorted to the execution site, the guy that was escorting him said, do you have any last wishes? And he says, yes, I would like to be buried in my hometown when I'm dead. Okay, well, where is your hometown? Oh, it is a village called Sangju. Really? I'm from Sangju. Do you know so-and-so? Do you know so-and-so? And they start talking. And the guy, the escort said, you know what? I'll tell them that I exec- executed you. You get out of here while you can. Whoa, I have good so that's Me too. <laughs> so so that, that's why I'm a big fan of uh, due process. <laughs> and so that's my grandpa. Now, fast forward about 1980s. Now, around this time, uh, you, know, you know, since the Korean War in 19... 19- in the early 1950s, there has been a lot of attempts by the North Korean government to infiltrate into the South by sending spies and all kinds of things, digging underground tunnels and and whatnot. So the South Korean government was very 
uh, mindful of North Korean spy activities and any sort of communist sympathies. And so there are now documents that have been declassified by the South Korean government that shows that sort of the uh, national, national security agency of South Korea in the 1980s, around there, uh, were just basically nabbing people off the street uh, in the middle of the night, anyone that they suspected of communist sympathies. Whoa. Uh, and so then my dad gets nabbed in the middle of the night, right? Usually when you get nabbed in the middle of the, of the night like that, uh, they're never seen again because usually they would be tortured into making false confessions or often just they would die in the process of torturing. Anyway, so my dad gets nabbed in the middle of the night, as the, again, as the story is told to me. Um, and the only reason he got out was that he happened to know somebody up the chain. So he said, mm -hmm. so-and-so, call up so-and-so, he can vouch for me, and he was released. So my family, again, got shafted by both sides. Mm -hmm. But the common theme is government overreach. When your civil liberties get trampled on, things happen to you. And, and so... Listen, I'm not a I'm not a, an anarchist by any stretch of the imagination. I think there is some personally. I think there is some good that the government can do, and I think mm -hmm. that's biblical. That the mm -hmm. secular power wields the sword for a reason, but because the secular power has well power, uh, mm -hmm. you have to keep that in check. And so that's a little bit about um, my discomfort with government overreach. So. You know, politically, I tend to be a little bit more on the limited government side of things. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's <laughs> super. And I mean, so are we. And that's so interesting because we do see this right a lot of the time where people are so scared of, you know, let's say the left having too much power. So then the right wants to solve that with power. And mm -hmm. it's really the same issue. Right. So it's really good yeah. to hear it like examples like that, which are really dramatic, but real. Like I think so often people think, well, stuff like that won't ever happen here. But the thing is power breeds power and people do crazy things yeah. when, when there's power involved. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And so I am all about distributing power or I should say decentralizing power. I am generally in favor of that with some exceptions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes, for sure. Yeah. The last election cycle, I was like, I just want to hear the politician that tells me they're going to do less. Like, don't tell me what <laughs> new laws you're going to put in place. Let's let's talk about what we're going to roll back and give back to the people. Mm -hmm. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So on to the topic at hand, transhumanism. So we actually mm -hmm. met briefly last week because you were like, hey, let's just make sure that I'm on the same page of stuff that you guys actually are interested in talking about. Right. And you gave us some topics that were a bit unexpected with the transhumanism. And we're going to get into those. I'm, I'm so, so fascinated by this and so interested in this conversation. And listeners, like this is important. Like I said earlier, this is important. The overarching people of the world are bringing this to you, whether you like it or not. And um, I think Steve's going to be able to offer you some really interesting aspects to think about. So to anchor the conversation, you gave us uh, last week two different definitions of transhumanism and right. um, also talked about transhumanism like at its worst and at its best. And mm -hmm. so can you kind of talk through that with us? 
Yeah. So transhumanism is one of those words that just seem like, like you said, Rita, it just seems really uh, obscure and but seems thankfully, crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems crazy uh, when you really dig deep into it. And th- there are definitely really dark sides to it. Uh, this word is becoming more familiar to people now uh, because of people like the World Economics Forum talking openly about transhumanism, like the historian Yuval Noah Harari talking yes. about it. And so that's that word is getting more into kind of sort of mainstream conversation. But having said that, a lot of people are not quite sure what to make of it. So humanityplus.org, if, so if you go to that website, this is something of a um, uh, transhumanism advocacy group, sort of the who, uh, who's who of the transhumanist philosophy world. You'll, you'll see them writing on this website and whatnot. So on this website, this is how they define transhumanism. They say transhumanism is the intellectual and cultural movement that affirms the possibility and desirability of fundamentally improving the human condition through applied reason, especially by developing and making widely available technologies to eliminate eliminate aging and to greatly enhance human intellectual, physical, and psychological capacities. Now, if you're going to sell Transhumanism, this is how to sell it. So there, mm, there is yeah, this- Eliminate aging. <laughs> right. Who doesn't want that, right? Um, now, so when you look at it that way, there's nothing that seems all that objectionable uh, because it just sounds like we're saying, hey, let's use technology to improve our lives. So I'm totally on board with that, generally speaking. And so- Transhumanism is really tightly connected with this idea of human enhancement, right? Human enhancement. Again, human enhancement, if you look at it, I mean, that's just something that we do all the time, right? So, you know, if I were to ask you, if I were to ask our listeners, give me, tell me some ways in which we enhance ourselves using technology. I mean, I would get a whole lot of examples right away, mm-hmm. right? So let, let's try that right now. Cecily and Rita, why don't you tell me some ways in which we enhance ourselves, enhance our lives using technology? I mean, I wouldn't even know Rita if it wasn't for technology. So that's a big one. I mean, yeah, when I think of becoming friends, however many years ago, via technology yeah. and what our lives have changed, our lives have changed massively since then. Right. Yeah. And and thanks to technology, now we have the Boom Clap podcast, which you know is definitely enhancing our our listeners' lives. <laughs> I would say, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, yeah, you're you're too modest. Um, mm-hmm. But this is the sort of thing that that we have, right? I mean, yeah. yes, we use uh, inter- the internet, we use laptops, mobile phones. These all enhance ourselves, but we do also enhance ourselves by wearing clothes. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wearing glasses. Uh, you and I use dishwasher detergents. We have central heating. Thank goodness it's mm-hmm. minus 30 in Alberta right now. I <laughs> still don't know why I live here. <laughs> and we use prosthetics. So our war veterans, sometimes they, they depend on that to improve their lives. We exercise and we uh, sometimes go on particular diets to, you know, just keep us in shape and keep us healthy. 
So this is a, an incontrovertible part of human life. We've been doing this, you know, ever since we discovered how to use fire, let's say. Right? But now this is the problem. Advanced technology is now changing the story. Uh, mm-hmm. So through, if, if you accumulate enough genetic engineering, AI, cybernetics, nanotechnology, so on and so forth, now we have the power to tinker with our own bodies in a really deep and intimate, at a deep and intimate level, such that we can really engineer ourselves out of our humanity. Wow. So there is a, I'm a bit of a book pusher. So I'm Love pushing it. this book by Michael Hauskeller. He's a philosopher out of the University of Exeter in the UK. Uh, he wrote a book called Better Humans? Question mark, Understanding the Enhancement Project. This is a really cool little book. Uh, he's not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination, but he, I think he gives it a really fair look, this whole transhumanist human enhancement project. Um, so he doesn't uh, – is, and he has some concerns about it from a secular perspective. Mm-hmm. And this is how he – describes transhumanism. Transhumanism or a transhumanist is someone who believes or professes to believe that we should do everything we can to leave the human condition behind and to evolve into something better than human. Ooh. So when you put it like that, all of a sudden, uh, I'm not so <laughs> sure about transhumanism anymore. Right? Yeah. So the the idea behind this is that humanity is not the pinnacle of evolution, right? Uh, we're all going to be transitional fossils. And so what we're going to do now, what, or what we can do now with the use of technology that we couldn't do before is this, that whereas in the past we relied on natural selection and random variation – now, with the use of technology like genetic engineering, AI, cybernetics, we're going to intelligently design our future evolution. So we can now in, uh, intentionally guide how we're going to evolve from this point on. Hmm. Right. So this, this is a little bit about transhumanism. It really depends on how you define it, hmm. whether it's something uh, overall really positive or overall really negative. Right. And I think like, like you said, it depends how you define it. But when we think of other things, um, like the classic example that people would probably use in apologetics of like a painting, a painting exists and only the artist knows why it was created. And I think the same thing applies for transhumanism um, and the technology that exists in that realm, right? So each person Mm -hmm. that's creating it probably has an idea in mind of what they would like this technology to be used for. Some of them are probably true transhumanists. Others are probably just trying to do a little good in the world, but that technology can be used for something else. So kind of an interesting thought um, and this forced evolution where humans kind of become God, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's very interesting to think about in a little bit. I find it... a little bit scary, not in the sense that I live in fear of it, but just the idea that humans think that we should have that capability. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it really depends on the worldview that you bring to the table. And Mm -hmm. what you mentioned just now is that, well, here's the question, are we created? 
Mm. Right. And that's going to really determine in a lot of ways what are the boundaries that, you know, within which we ought to play. Because what transhumanists who are very much atheistic, who take on that atheistic, secular kind of a view of the world, they have no problems with just moving boundaries. There are really no mm. boundaries. There mm-hmm. are only limits, right? And those limits can ever be pushed out farther and farther. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody who is, I mean, uh, th- this might be a little bit surprising to hear. There is uh, a Mormon transhumanist society hmm. uh, because that is, they that is this, surprising. <laughs> it is a little surprising, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it actually for their theology, this fits really well because uh, Mormons believe that you and I can become gods, right? Because right. God the Father was mm-hmm. once a man, uh, as as we are now, and he he became deified in Jesus by following the ordinances of his father, God the Father, who mm-hmm. is also our father. Um, you know, he became deified, so can we. Um, mm-hmm. And so in, in the pursuit of, in a sense, becoming gods, well, why not use technology to achieve that end sort of a thing? And so it, it really depends on the worldview that you bring to the table. Um, if you are created by someone, of course, there is intent, there is design. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you flourish is by living according to the design and not contrary to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I, I've told you the uh, the story of the brilliant thing that I did where I take I take mm-hmm. my wife's car and I fill it up with gas only to realize that she actually drives diesel. <laughs> and, and so I, I felt really dumb that day. Uh, <laughs> my wife was just so gracious though. And my brother-in-law just really bailed me out because he's really good with cars. Anyway, <laughs> but imagine driving a diesel car on gas. The mm. car is not going to flourish. That's right. Because that's not how it's designed. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, then you have to start. It, this is where it gets complicated, right? Well, what if we can change up the car? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that's the question, right? Do we actually have the authority to do so? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Rita, did you have something to say? Because you well, look like you had you had mentioned earlier, uh, you've all know a Harari, and I had written down actually some things that he said prior to this. As Cecily was saying, you know, only the artist knows what the painting was intended to, you know, portray. Mm-hmm. Um, you said it differently, but something to that extent. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the thing. You know, the leaders that are in in charge, quote unquote, are trying to lead. Mm-hmm and direct the ship when it comes to transhumanism, they have a very different worldview than you or I do. And if you listen to his many, many, many speeches, he consistently uh, portrays a non-Christian worldview and sort of laughs in the face of God and says things like, we are, we, quote unquote, like him, are learning how to design and create life. Like Mm -hmm. he is learning how to design and create life. He talks about um, the future masters of the planet being able or being the ones who own the data. And he talks about, um, this is a direct quote, you have no answer in the Bible for when humans are no longer useful to the economy. You need completely different ideas, completely different religions, and they will likely emerge from Silicon Valley, not the Middle East. And so- Yeah. You know, when we think about transhumanism, it depends on who's in the driver's seat, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Well, 
partially. I'm not for it regardless who's in the driver's seat, but with these people that are against our worldview, you know, like Cecily said, I'm not afraid of it uh, because I ultimately decide what I take up for my family, right? You know, my husband and I decide that, but um, awareness uh, that it's coming helps us to Mm -hmm. uh, make decisions prior to it being here, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting you bring up Yuval Noah Harari's quotes because I've I've heard those and I've read those. In fact, I have on my shelf his book, Homo Deus. Um, that's a really interesting read in the sense of if you want to really get a good sort of look into how a transhumanist thinks, that's a good mm-hmm. book. Mm. And what you find out very, you know, pretty much immediately is that, okay, Yuval Noah Harari, his – He's not a theist. Um, he's not mm-hmm. religious at all, and he, his book, uh, his book *Sapiens*, you know, gives you the history of humanity, and he very much accepts the sort of the atheistic view, you know, macroevolutionistic view of humanity. And so, yeah, given that worldview, there is no God over us. There is no one thing. One complaint, of course, as a, a as somebody who's kind of studied uh, religion. <laughs> for some time is that he takes a very dim view of religion. And I don't mm. really get the sense that he knows religion all that well mm. either, other than from a historian's perspective, anthropologist's perspective, perhaps, but he doesn't actually get into the depths of the philosophy uh, and the worldview of it all. And, and so that that's why he can say something like, well, the Bible has no answers for when humans uh, become basically obsolete uh, because, well, yeah, in a sense, that's true because the Bible kind of puts humanity at the center of God's creative scheme. Mm-hmm. Not that we are in the center of the universe, but we're in the center of his creative purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it, it's kind of a it, – it's almost odd to say he, – he's almost making claims for the Bible that the Bible is not interested in making, in a mm, sense. It's a good point. It, because, yes, we, we do believe that human history will be wrapped up at some point. Mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, so I, I can't really blame Harari mm-hmm. in the sense that he's just speaking from his worldview. Yeah. Um, the question is whether his worldview is the correct one that can best account for reality as we know it. But, um, yeah, but that's where I would sit on that roughly. Yeah. That's really, really a good point that you brought up about him, not him making claims for the Bible, but not necessarily knowing the Bible. And I think that's just really interesting to ponder on in general. So I'm going to leave that there and not elaborate further. (laughs) We can move on. But something else you talked about that Mm -hmm. I found so interesting, Cecily and I both, limits as gifts. Limits as gifts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I've been actually interested in, I, I came to really appreciate Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy. Appreciate it not in the sense that I necessarily agree with everything that he says. There's a lot that I disagree with. There are some things that I agree with. And for our listeners, if you're not familiar with Friedrich Nietzsche, um, he's a 19th century German philosopher who's known for the proclamation that God is dead. Um, And he's known for the concept called Übermensch, that 
we, we sometimes translate it Superman, overhuman, superhuman, mm-hmm. right? And um, it, what I found is that Nietzsche's philosophy and the transhumanist philosophy actually have a lot in common. So this, uh, let me just paint for our listeners kind of a big brush overview of Nietzsche's philosophy. So uh, God is dead. There's no objective meaning in life. Life uh, necessarily wants to discharge itself. And, and, and so when you, um, when you do that, you know, this is called will to power, right? Nietzsche's philosophy, at the core of it, there is this will to power. Um, but uh, as finite human beings, you're going to bump up against limitations, right? Mm-hmm. So what you need to do is an, an Ubermensch is somebody who, uh, as he or she overcomes the, these limitations, you, they create themselves. They become who they are. So for those listeners that are a little bit more familiar with the sort of the intellectual history or the history of philosophy will recognize that as well, that sounds like existentialism, and that's very much correct. Uh, Nietzsche it, was very much an existentialist. So an existentialist uh, says uh, existence precedes essence, which means, again, you become who you are, right? Now, Christianity uh, goes backwards, right? As we, we start with essence precedes existence. You are who you are, and out of that, you do what you do. Uh, of, and so going back to existentialism then, uh, an Ubermensch is one who sort of trans, sort of um, destroys all values and creates for himself uh, a new interpretation of these values, whatever it might be. You're sort of you're forging your own path in the face of this absurd life that has no objective meaning. You you create your own meaning. This mm-hmm is the Ubermensch who becomes who he is. No, so we're trying to create and become who we are. Uh, Now, I have to be careful because Nietzsche was, in a sense, he he wasn't a transhumanist because transhumanism wasn't Mm -hmm. really, Mm -hmm. it was was a word that was coined by, I think it was, was it uh, Julian Huxley, I think, in the 1950s or something like that? And Nietzsche was way before that, so it would be difficult to kind of peg him as a transhumanist, but you could, I think, fairly, uh, with fairness, say, legitimately say that he was something of an ancestor to the transhumanist philosophy, at least one of them. So whereas the Ubermensch, the the superhuman, is trying to overcome the limitations um, and, and trying to create, become who we are, by overcoming limitations, creating new values, transhumanists are saying we're trying to create and become who we are through technology. Mm-hmm. So Nick Bostrom is a very prominent transhumanist um, philosopher. And he said, we're basically striving to constantly refine ourselves and to broaden our intellectual horizons. Right, And of course, if you read more of his stuff, uh, he'll tell you that he can't wait to become a post-human not just transhumans, but post-human, by which he means a human being who, in a sense, you can't really call this a human being, but somebody who now has capacities that are not normal for mm-hmm. an average human being like you mm-hmm. and me. And he's very 
uh, upfront about it. Mm. And so there, there is that, that overlap. Now, I am also falling in love with G.K. Chesterton lately. And one of the things that he said was, well, actually, limits aren't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, in fact, without limits, without boundaries, you can't make sense of anything, right? Even the words that I use, right? It has boundaries. You can't just read into it whatever meaning you want. Um, when I first came to Canada, I had to learn, well, English because I lived out on the West and people generally just speak English. And so when I was learning English, I couldn't just give English words whatever meaning I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have been able to communicate with anybody, right? Mm-hmm. So when I say the word apple, there is a boundary to it. When I'm talking about an apple, not an orange, when I'm talking about a cat, I'm not talking about a dog, so on and so forth. So G.K. Chesterton, he kind of put it this way. Imagine a painter setting out to paint a giraffe, but then he just paints a short-necked animal, mm-hmm. right? Well, that's not really a giraffe. Uh, one of the most distinguishing features of the giraffe is the long neck. Uh, and of course, this doesn't come through the painting, but the incredibly high blood pressure that's going on inside the giraffe's body so that you can send blood up to the head. Anyway, that's just random Mm -hmm. trivia. (laughs) But you can't just draw something. So when when the painter is sitting out to paint a giraffe, he is bound by certain features of the giraffe that make the giraffe a giraffe. Mm -hmm. Same thing with morality. You need limits. Um, there, there are in our interactions. There are some things that we can and cannot, uh, ought and ought not do to one another, so on and so forth. Now, here's um, here's something that I've been kind of mulling over in terms of identity, because when you're studying transhumanist philosophy, identity becomes really key. Like, what mm-hmm. am I? Who am I? Am I the sort of thing that can be just tinkered with? and edited, right? Now we have the technology like CRISPR-Cas9. And with that, now we have the capacity to, you know, with some refinement, we can now edit our genes like you would a Word document. Um, so am I the sort of thing that we can just kind of genetically and, you know, with cybernetics and AI, nanotechnology, just tinker with and completely change? So that the question of identity is very much at the center. Um, identity itself is a bounded concept, right? I, I am what I am and not something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am me. I'm not Cecily. You know, Cecily mm-hmm. is not Rita. You know, Rita is not Steve, so on and so forth. So limits are actually what give us the capacity to understand the world without limits, without boundaries. Now there's nothing left. When, when, when it's too open, when it's, it just leads into all kinds of contradictions. We can't make sense of the world. Now, what if our identity, right? Again, depending on your worldview is something that has been given to us. Right? So one, one thing that I have, a, a real issue with 
in transhumanism, I think about it, you know, just constant self-creation and recreation. I think about that and I go, what a tiresome existence, mm-hmm. right? What a tiresome existence. You have to do that over and over again. It's like the myth of Sisyphus, where this guy Sisyphus gets punished by the Greek gods, right? What is his punishment? Well, he's rolling this huge rock, this boulder up this hill. And whenever he gets to the top, the boulder just rolls down. He has to do it over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Mm-hmm. And we already actually see the impact of this kind of self-creation philosophy being played out in our culture, yes. uh, in the world of social media of all yes. places. You know, this idea of, you know, you do you, uh, you're mm-hmm. your image, you kind of. So if you look at you and me in a lot of, especially our young people, we're constantly advertising ourselves and trying to keep up with others. Right. Right. And it, it, you know, what do you like on social media and how often do you feel like you have to speak on some issue just because others are talking about it and you don't want to miss out? Yes. Uh, What are the, (laughs) what are the, uh, you know, media outlets or companies that you follow? You know, if you look through my social media, it becomes pretty obvious, you know, what my, you know, religious, political, you know, spiritual leanings are. Mm-hmm. And if I were to look at my friend's, say, Instagram account, it'll be very different. And we're constantly kind of putting ourselves out there, creating and recreating ourselves. And it's just tiresome existence. And our young people, especially teenagers, know this all too well because here is a phrase that they hate to hear, but we all too mm-hmm. often say to them, it, it, it should be counted as torture, but we tell them, just be yourself. Just mm-hmm. be yourself. Do you have any idea how daunting it is for a teenager to hear that and to implement right. it? Because they're just discovering themselves. Right. What do you mean just be myself? Who am I? Mm-hmm. Right. So when you don't know who you are, what happens is now you're trying to create yourself, recreate yourself. And then what you're going to see is there's some incongruity between your social media identity and your identity in school, identity in your family, identity in, at your work, identity in your church. Hmm. Well, we, we know this, right? Is this fulfilling? The, the short answer is no. <laughs> depression and anxiety are on the rise and mm-hmm. there's a strong correlation between social media and depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. That has been noted many times over already in various studies. And so I think of that kind of transhumanist philosophy in conjunction with the question of identity. I'm just like, man, it's, it's just such a tiresome existence. We're taking a quick break to let you know about our sponsor for this episode, which is Lux and the Moon. Lux and the Moon has the cutest clothes for all stages of life. And we love that they are a family owned and run business. Jessica and Brianna are sisters. Rachel is a cousin. Their moms are actually twins, which is super cool. So they actually consider themselves siblings. I love that. Rachel and Jessica run Lux and the Moon and Brianna is their model. So they've got it all covered, all within the family. They are all full-time moms with full-time plates but they've always wanted to run a business like this and they're doing an incredible job. Their clothes, like I said, are adorable. I have way too many in my cart all the time that I'm looking at and loving. They're constantly posting them in their stories that you can see what they've got. They're just providing real, 
and honest customer service. They're helping women to feel comfortable in in what they wear, even as their bodies are changing throughout life. And they're bringing old school flair back to life through an online experience. And that is my favorite thing because old school flair is my jam. So, so thankful to have found Lux and the Moon. You guys need to check out luxandthemoon.com and enter the code BOOMCLAP to save on your order. There are so many directions we could go with all you just said, but one thing I want to pull out, just one thing, and then I'm sure Cecily has some things that she wants to pull out also, but you had said uh, transhumanism and I like identity with transhumanism has become key. And immediately my mind goes to the gender debate and the kids mm-hmm. thinking they're animals and furries and all these things. And Cecily and I often talk about these ideas aren't things that these kids or even adults really came up with on their own. These these are very much ideas that have been pushed out to society. And it's yeah. basically a, uh, uh, it's, it's just being become a wave across the nation, right? And across North America in general. But um, I, I kind of think almost that when you bring transhumanism in as a topic and knowing that this is kind of coming top down and being pushed out to us, that maybe some of these gender issues that have been also pushed out to us are kind of like the frog in the pot situation where they're right. starting to push biological boundaries in these ways mm-hmm. that people will easily take up in order to ultimately bring transhumanism in. Yeah, no, I think you're making a really astute observation there because the whole gender uh, stuff that's going on right now and the gender affirmation surgeries and and puberty blockers and all those kinds of things, there is very much um, close relationship. I mean, that, that fits really comfortably with a transhumanist philosophy. Yeah. And uh, that also fits very comfortably with Nietzsche's philosophy, the idea of you become who you are, you create mm-hmm. yourself. Right. But in fact, if you read the book, uh, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, mm-hmm. or if that's too academic for our listeners, I recommend that you pick up a copy of his book, Strange New World, which is the more lay-friendly version of that. Even then, I heard it's, it's somewhat heavy, but definitely more manageable than The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self. So pick up a copy of Strange New World. What Carl Truman does is that he kind of traces the, the intellectual history that leads up to this sort of gender ideology phenomenon that we're seeing in our culture today. And he picks out some key uh, historical philosophical figures. Um or not not always in philosophy, because you do have a psychologist like Sigmund Freud, right? But there's also Karl Marx. But then he brings up, right, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And so it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, yes, there is very much a, a close relationship there. And really, in a sense, the kind of gender affirmation surgeries and those kinds of things that you see in our culture, you could see it as um, a transhumanist effort. Mm-hmm. In some ways, there there's definitely significant overlap there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this is why, um, like we talked about earlier, when it comes to worldview and who whoever is implementing these transhumanism ideas, and when we look at the gender ideology debate, and you know, it, it does come from a worldview, but the the fact of it is, whether people believe it or not, 
right? There is an objective truth to which worldview um, mm-hmm. is actually based on truth. Like we all have different worldviews and that's fine, but only one, well, I, worldview is complex, but there's only one actual truth, right? And so that's why we see, especially like with gender stuff going on right now, it's easy for us to see how it's harming people, right? It's not easy for people really close to it to necessarily see until they're a little bit removed from it, but it's easy for us to see it. Because like you mentioned earlier, if we're going against the way that the creator intended it, then we're not going to be flourishing. And so, like you said, it fits in with transhumanism, this gender thing. And that's, that's the alarming part is that when you have the world, the worldview that we do, you can kind of see how things spiral quickly because it's going against what the design is. Yeah, I I think that's true. There is really, I've always found it interesting that when I read transhumanist literature um, and when they talk about the ethics of it, a lot of it seemed rather pragmatic to me. How do we manage the pragmatic risks that come with testing out uh, technologies that are relatively new. Um, how is it going to shape society and how do we guard against this or that? So for example, one one concern that a lot of people have is, okay, well, if we start using genetic engineering to say eliminate certain kinds of diseases, mm-hmm. well, what what would happen to like health insurance where health insurance companies are now going, okay, we're not going to cover you cover this particular condition because you could easily get, um, mm-hmm. or maybe not easily, but why why didn't you eliminate that condition right from right. when you were an embryo? And so yeah. it's going to start creating this disparity. And it's, there's another question of, is it going to create this two-tiered society uh, where the haves now, you know, basically have achieved mm-hmm. immortality Right through genetic engineering, they reversed aging, and they have all the time in the world, and they can afford all these technologies. And then the have-nots are sort of your ordinary people, or people who are who haven't been enhanced enough. Standard you know, issue humans. <laughs> yes. Yeah, sort of. You know, um, you're just human, whereas we're humanity plus kind of an idea, right? Yeah. And actually, there's a really um, a good movie that portrays this well is called, I think it's called In Time. Mm. Uh, Maybe I got the title wrong. It's either In Time or Just In Time or something like that. Maybe I'm thinking Just In Time because the the actor was Justin Timberlake. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So basically in this movie, um, people don't use currency anymore. Uh, in the sense of you know your traditional currency dollars or you know yens or whatever, mm-hmm. now they use time, and the time is printed on your wrist, Whoa. and when the time runs out, you die. Now, because of technology, you have eliminated aging, uh, and so it's just basically a matter of how much time do you have left mm-hmm. biologically, right? And wow. so people for example, get on the bus and they put their wrist on this reader thing and it deducts a certain amount of time like you would, you know, charge money sort of a thing. And so there are people who can't even get on a bus comfortably because they're kind of living paycheck to paycheck, so to speak, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Because when you work, instead of getting 
money for your salary or wages or whatever, you get time on your wrist. Mm-hmm. And so then you have people who can't even go on the bus, you know, just whenever they want. But then on the other hand, you have really wealthy people that are, you know, gambling with centuries at stake, right? And they bet centuries wow. all the time. And anyway, it's a really fascinating movie. And so yeah. these these halves, now they don't die unless by accident. So they try to live a really safe kind of existence, right? And so that there's all kinds of questions. But that's a really fun movie if you want to get uh, sort of a nightmare scenario, if you will. <laughs> yeah, that does sound movie. interesting. So the, the, in transhumanist philosophies, the, the literature that I read, often these are the kinds of questions that they're talking about. How mm-hmm. do we manage this? Um, but in terms of sort of the ethics behind it, it's there isn't a whole lot. I mean, they they do talk about you know, should we or shouldn't we? Um, but it's more on the utilitarian side of things, pragmatic mm-hmm. side of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, most often that's what I see. Um, but the, the question of whether, you know, is, is there uh, any sort of moral obligation um, to a creator? Of course, that's not very, that's not very pre- prevalent. And quite honestly, I think Christians are, I wouldn't say a little late to the discussion. Maybe yes. we are, but I think so. uh, there aren't. Yeah, there aren't a whole lot of Christians writing on this. There are some, but the voice is not nearly prominent as it should be. I think. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, it, th- it really does depend on the worldview. On should or shouldn't we? I think the decision has pretty well been made. You know, I think that regardless of should or shouldn't, people uh, who are deciding for society are deciding should. And maybe they're arguing, you know, ethics alongside of it. But at the same time, we live in a society where technology rules and the first to the, you know, the first one to market is the one that wins. And that's, so regardless of should or shouldn't, I think people are putting uh, their moral obligation behind uh, their financial stake. Well, and speaking of technology wins, I've made multiple references to this over the past few years, but this all very much feels like um, the pursuit of the Tower of Babel all over again. Like that was their own technology in their own time, mm-hmm. right? And they were using it to to raise themselves up, to basically give themselves glory, to improve themselves. And I mean... I feel like we're seeing the same thing happening over again. And I mean, we've seen it throughout human history, different variations of the Tower of Babel. Um, Mm -hmm. But this one is just very clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I've also heard the the metaphor of gardens being used. Mm. Uh, I think think the Tower of Babel definitely works. Mm -hmm. Um, There is also the idea of the garden. In a sense, we're trying to create our own garden rather than uh, working in the garden that God has given us. So I've always found it really interesting, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis, God creates Adam outside of the garden and puts him in there to work it. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that this sacred space is going to expand, right? Because when Eve comes along, the blessing that they get is be fruitful and multiply, Mm -hmm. right? And you're supposed to sort of uh, expand this sacred space to other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
really what we're trying to do uh, in sort of the secular transhumanist outlook on things. We're trying to create our own garden, our own utopia mm-hmm. through the use of technology. Yeah. And again, like like you said, Cecily, this is not the first time that we've tried this, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, if nothing else, the 20th century has been one failed attempt after another of trying to create some secular utopia and it has Absolutely. not worked out. If yeah. anything, it has brought untold millions of deaths. Yes. Uh, it was the mm-hmm. bloodiest period in human history by sheer body count alone. Yeah. Um, and so I, I am, listen, like I think there is an element of human enhancement in the Christian worldview in the sense that, you know, I think it is a genuine enhancement <laughs> When you turn from your sins and turn mm-hmm. to Christ, right? When you are restored to right relationship with God and with one another, that is a mm-hmm. genuine enhancement. Um, although I might qualify that and say it's actually more like revival <laughs> mm-hmm. than you know revival from That's spiritual right. death, yeah. rather than simply you know something you're lacking that you had to had to make up for. Mm-hmm. But there is. This uh, in the Christian meta narrative of things, there will come a day when Jesus will come back and the heaven and earth will be one completely again, right? So that we live in right relationship with God and with one another, live in a place where love is perfected. And, and that I think is, is a, a real, genuine enhancement. So I'm not against human enhancement as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, because in a sense, these kinds of technologies can be used, for example, to root out sickle cell disease, right? Or HIV um, uh, infections and, and those kinds of things. It's just that there are other things. When we talk about this, there are other worldview things that often, so often come along with it, where, for example, suffering is seen as a necessarily, necessarily evil thing bad mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that, right? right? I mean, listen, we all went through school, right? Some of us are still going through school. Uh, <laughs> why do that? Why Why do we suffer like that? Because we understand this is for our good. Mm-hmm. And God often uses suffering to actually humble us and and that's usually, well, that's always, when God humbles you, that's always a good thing, mm-hmm. right? Because now you are living in right relationship with the person who has created you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not against human enhancement, but I am worried about other worldview things that get, that just tags along. Yeah. My kids and I were just doing a C.S. Lewis segment uh, from Hillsdale College for our homeschooling this last week. And a, a lot of the conversation hinged around, you know, dying to self and human suffering being a part of, you know, becoming right with God. And so it was just interesting to think about that as human enhancement, but human enhancement without uh, the complete utopia side of things, right? Right. So, yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. If I may just add one thing, I think we tend to think that heaven and hell are just those things that are far off on mm-hmm. the other side of existence. But really, if you understand, at least in the Christian worldview, 
what is at the core of heaven and hell? It is being united with God, being in God's presence, right? That's what makes heaven or hell. Uh, so what that means is heaven and hell are not some realities that we experience only when we die. It starts right here. So we're living in a world where there's this very interesting intersection between heaven and hell, where mm -hmm. some people have, they are walking temples of God's very own spirit, and there are those who live without him. And mm -hmm. so it's not like we just kind of look beyond. In fact, my friend Andy, uh, he, he'll tell you that he grew up, he never wondered where hell was real because he came from such a broken family, mm -hmm. really, and grew up in poverty. And so he never doubted that there was hell. I can experience it. I don't have to die. Mm -hmm. But what I was wondering about is, is there heaven? Right. And so, we're, again, we're living in a really interesting kind of a place where those things intersect. And, yeah, it, it, you, you kind of have to, you know what, I, I'm just going to, I'm probably going to rant if I keep going, so I'm just going to stop here. Rita, you were going to take this. <laughs> no, that was really interesting. Thank you for Very that. Very interesting. And Steve, I can appreciate that. Just stopping myself. I, there, Something happened on the last episode where I was like, there was so yeah. much I could have said, but I just shut up because I knew that <laughs> like it would end up in a whole nother episode. Like we would have went a whole nother hour. So like I'm done for now. We'll talk about that later. But anyway, uh, yeah. on the transhumanism topic, you had brought up the Chinese room experiment, which I hadn't seen. So I looked that up the other day. Oh, yeah. And mm -hmm. so I want to get into the topic of can machines really think, but that Chinese room experiment was an amazing illustration of that. So can you yeah. talk us through that and then bring us into can machines really think? Yeah. So actually, uh, if you don't mind, I'll go backwards. Uh, I'll start with the question, can machines really think? Because yeah, often, sure. I mean, we see this, right? Uh, people who are somewhat uh, familiar with this area will know that Saudi Arabia, uh, just a few years ago, gave citizenship to this robot, Sophia, this mm. AI robot that was built by Hanson Robotics in, I believe, in Hong Kong. And so you might have seen Sophia on you know, such shows as Jimmy Fallon's Late Night Show, you know, those kinds of things. And Finally, Sophia received basically um, citizenship and along with that, certain rights that come with it. And so there was a lot of uh, complaints about that from various feminists who are like, okay, the government of Saudi Arabia right. uh, cares more about a robot, robot than women kind of thing. It is now, very interesting, especially very coming interesting. out of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so this is actually, I think, illustrative of the fact that we tend to think – that when a machine gets complex enough that it can become persons, it can mm -hmm. even become human. Um, and so there has been lots of discussions and philosophy, especially in the mind-body problem area, where we talk about, is there a soul? Is soul real? Or are we just bodies? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. the, this has been a discussion that's been going on for a long time. Now, what I find is that most people kind of presuppose this atheistic, materialistic look and say, well, if the machine gets complex enough, then it can become persons. Mm. Uh, now, I am not sure that we are elevating machines to the level of persons 
in a sense, I think we're just really demoting ourselves to the level of machines. Yeah. <laughs> because why, why else would you think that machines, when they get complex enough, can become persons? That presupposes a particular view of a human being, right? Mm -hmm. You have to assume that you and I are basically bags of chemicals and bones that are really complex. Um, you know, we have, you know, why are we better than dogs in a sense? Because we have big, mm -hmm. a bigger brain. Now, in I think it was in the 1980s, don't quote me on that, but there was this uh, philosopher by the name of John Searle, uh, not a Christian, he's an atheist, uh, but he actually came up with this Chinese room experiment to talk about whether machines can actually think. So this is how it goes. Let's say there is a room um, and Cecily is in it. She doesn't know any Chinese whatsoever. True fact. For what, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what she has is this very comprehensive book that tells you if you see these characters put together, you can put out these characters. So mm -hmm. given enough time, she can respond to anything. So let's say I come to the door. Let's just pretend for a moment that I'm Chinese um, and that I speak Mandarin. So what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to take a piece of paper and I'm going to write down something like, hello, how are you? Um, and then I slide the piece of paper onto the door. Cecily from the inside picks it up. She, again, doesn't understand Chinese, but she goes to the book and finds the place where it shows this exact combination of Chinese characters. Hello, how are you? Mm -hmm. And then she follows the instructions to say, okay, I'm going to write these characters and I'm going to put this piece of paper out under the door. So on the outside, I pick it up and I read it and go, yeah, hi, I'm doing well. My name is Cecily. What's your name? Well, and then yeah. take another piece of paper and I write out in Chinese character, hey, my name is Steve. Very nice to meet you. Slide it on. And then this goes on, right? Now, me on the outside, I think, my goodness, this, this is so good. Like this, there must be a Chinese person inside this this room. But then when I open the door, I only discover that there is blonde-haired, blue-haired lady who doesn't speak a lick of English. <laughs> You know, Chinese or Mandarin, I, I should say. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know Chinese at all, right? And so this was, this thought experiment was kind of proposed to show that even if the machines can convincingly carry on a conversation with you, that does not show that this um, actually, this machine actually understands what it's saying, that it can think for itself that is actually having this sort of interpersonal relationship. Now, if you think about it, right, I could ask a machine, right, say Sophia, I can ask her, what does it feel like to have wind through your hair, mm. right? Uh, now, I, I, I haven't had that in a long time. <laughs> I don't know what that feels like. I'm bald. I was fighting a losing battle in my mid-20s and decided to shave my head at one point. Um, but when I had hair, I actually knew what that felt like. Can Sophia say the same? Even if she were to have prosthetic hair and things like that. Now, she can say, yes, it feels like such and such. Mm -hmm. But does Sophia know what it's like? Right? That felt yeah. quality. 
Yeah. Right. So there, there are these things that we just kind of assume that, you know, when a machine is complex enough that the machine can become persons. But there are these machines, as far as I'm concerned, cannot actually experience these things. These yeah. are just codes. Well, and when we think about it, um, like that Chinese room experiment, it, uh, thought experiment is so good because it makes it so clear to us. But now I'm imagining like, say Sophia was sitting across from me and we were having this conversation about transhumanism where, where the main point of it is that different worldviews are going to produce a different conversation, right? And yeah. so wouldn't it be interesting to see like what kind of response would we get from Sophia in a conversation that's more than just like, hey, how's it going, right? Right. And, and Sophia, these AI technologies, really, they need a lot of data to begin mm-hmm. with, right? So uh, an AI uh, robot like Sophia uh, has access to the internet and based on what it can gather, mm-hmm. right, what it can kind of extract from the internet, that's mm-hmm. how this robot forms the responses that it re- yeah. forms. So what that means is really this AI robot is really not just thinking for itself, quote unquote, thinking for itself. It is just regurgitating what has been put exactly. out there. Now you can you can create codes for the robot to generate new kinds of um, you know, ideas, but that is, is not something that the robot itself is doing. That is something that people are programming into it. That's right. Right. So, yeah. So there are some, I have some serious doubts as to whether machines can actually become persons. And what you find typically is that people who are futurists tend to have this really rosy view of the future where technology can do all these things or think mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. become persons. But people who actually work on the sort of the, the coding level, if you will, computer scientists, a lot of them are like, yeah, no, that. That's not going to happen. They they don't mm-hmm. feel things. They don't really right. understand. Like understanding is is a is a person thing. Maybe maybe this illustration will really drive home the point. Listen, if I have a a, a doll that has a button, and I press the button, and it says "I love you," does that mean the doll actually loves me? Right. Mm-hmm. No, obviously not. Because it is just doing a programmed response. Let's say this doll is now, uh, looks a lot more like a human being, and it's a lot more complex. So I don't have to press a button. It does voice recognition. And I say, I love you. And the doll responds back, uh, I love you back, right? Does that mm-hmm. mean the doll actually loves me? Maybe it's not a good look to talk about dolls and saying it, I love Anyway, <laughs> just go with the thought experiment for a yeah. moment, right? Um. But you can see that this is not a genuine interpersonal relationship. It's just programmed response. Mm -hmm. In the same way, when you and Sophia have this conversation about transhumanism, you're not really having a conversation as such. You're doing Mm input-output, right? That's not a real conversation, so to speak. It's, It's not an interpersonal conversation. It's really more advanced form of you typing something into the computer when you press enter, it spits back uh, 
a programmed response. Yeah. So now when we're thinking of, and we don't have to get into this in great detail, but when we're thinking of the fact that this AI, Sophia, other AI, gets their data from the internet, then we start thinking about internet censorship bills in different countries like Canada, the U.S., that's going to affect the data that they receive as well, you would think, which is going to mean that the responses that they form are even more funneled than they would have been mm-hmm. pro- possibly previously. So it's just like another component. Yeah, that that's a good point. Uh, I mean, when you look at China, right, mm-hmm. um, most Chinese citizens, they don't really have access to the internet as such. They have, what they have is a massive intra net yes right because you, you you know about the great firewall of china mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the chinese government has a very tight control over what its citizens can and cannot see and so a lot of chinese citizens are really just isolated from mm-hmm. the, they don't the government doesn't allow you to have certain uh virtual private network apps uh mm-hmm. you know on pain of fines or even prison sentence. I don't know. But anyway, at any rate, the Chinese government has a pretty tight control over it. And so, yeah, what if you created Sophia and the only thing that it could access was what you can actually see within the sort of the Chinese intranet, mm-hmm. right? That would be a very different, you would have a very different conversation yeah, uh, than one that had access to everything. And in a sense, this would be a robot that is only saying in this illustration, in this thought experiment, this Sophia would be one that only basically spews out whatever the Chinese government has steered it to say, in a sense, indirectly, but Mm -hmm. controlled nonetheless. Yeah. Super interesting. Just to think, it's just another layer to think about. Yeah. Yeah. A few things, a few questions I have based on what you just laid out for us there on can machines think. So I guess maybe the better question is not can they think, but um, can machines change our thinking? Can they alter our thinking? Like at what point is our thinking just being manipulated and not really our own? And then Mm -hmm. on the topic of Sophia or the doll or whatever saying, I love you, but not necessarily knowing what love is and not really being able to love, like, does it matter as long as the person Mm -hmm. believes it, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about a while back, um, the metaverse and like clothing lines being sold to people and people buying clothes to wear in the metaverse. That's not real, but people think Mm -hmm. it is. And so does it even matter that it's not real if people think it is and are willing to spend their money on it? And then I think about our currency, like our dollar bill. It's it's mm-hmm. not real. Right. Money's it's not fiat. real, right. but we believe it is and we say it is and we spend it like it is. And so since people uh, have put a value on it uh, with, does that make sense? Like we, we've said mm-hmm. it is real and have put a value, to, value on it and all agree upon it. So then it becomes real. Yeah, I guess it all depends on what real means. This is here, just where right? my this is just where my mind is going. You know, like no, <laughs> yeah, no. This is a great point uh, because that really, um, in a sense, connects really well with Nietzsche's philosophy, where you just sort of become who you are, right? And so you are very much at the center of what reality is in a lot of ways. 
And so uh, here, here's the thing. Technology has, it's not as value neutral as people think it is. Mm-hmm. So you think about something like social media, right? How has that impacted us? I mean, you could have studies upon studies of how social media has changed the way we interact with one another. Mm. We're being shaped by the technologies that we created. Um, And so, yeah, you definitely have to think about how technology shapes your thinking. Now, speaking of reality and technology, uh, a few weeks back, uh, the Apologetics Canada team spoke on... BMW's new concept car, D. I listened to that. Yeah, that was really interesting. That was a fun one. Um, Mm -hmm. I wish we did more of those. Those are when we interact with those kinds of things. It's always Mm -hmm. fun because there's so much worldview stuff that comes with it. Now, people talk about augmented reality. So in this car, what happens is you sit in it and you set the certain augmented reality things and you look out and you it could look like you're driving through an aquarium or, you know, <laughs> augmented reality really today when you have, you know, for example, on your phone, say Google Lens or something like that, and you point at something and it tells gives you all the information about, let's say, this restaurant that I'm, you know, pointing my phone at, for example, right? And it shows everything right on the screen. Um, and, and so th- this is supposed to be augmented reality, but think about that, right? Think about that when you're sitting in the car and you're driving this car and you see there's all these like fish and corals and you're driving through this aquarium, basically has the, has reality changed? Like what is actually going on outside of the car, mm-hmm. Right. Are there actually fish swimming around? No, that's what you see. So in a sense, you haven't really augmented reality. You augmented your perception of it. That's now, right. yeah. all of this, when you say augmented reality, really you're sneaking in this assumption that reality is as you see it, like as um, what you see is basically reality. Now, I think mm-hmm. just on a gut level, people recognize that that's, that we actually want the real thing and not whatever we perceive. For example, mm-hmm. uh, a good example of that would be the Matrix. If if you've seen that movie, you know that you know there there is a tension, right? Some people want to stay in the world of Matrix because that's what they know, that's what they're comfortable with. But then there is very much this drive to okay, but what's actually going on? Human beings are basically being manipulated and mm-hmm. harvested for energy by these machines. That's what's actually happening. So we need to fight against that. And when you watch that movie, I don't know, maybe some people might go, oh, I, I, I want to just stay in that world of, you know, matrix. And if the machines mm-hmm. want to harvest me for energies, then so be it kind of a thing. <laughs> but I think most people would watch that and go, yeah, you know what? I would actually want to fight in that Good, fight the good fight and mm-hmm. fight against these machines that are harvesting humanity. So, so that I think illustrates is reality important, right? Or it, it, does my perception of reality trump what is actually going on? Uh, there is a great um, story that I once heard. One of our speakers at our Apologetics Canada conference years ago, uh, she told the story of Dallas Willard, uh, a very 
godly Christian man who was one time chair of philosophy at the University of Southern California. Um, and he's very gentle, very thoughtful. Anyway, one time he gave a lecture on truth. And during Q&A, this young lady came up and rather arrogantly asked, so you talked about truth all night. What is truth? And in this classic Dallas Willard way, he paused for a moment. And very slowly he said, truth is reality. Mm-hmm. And reality is something you bump into when you're wrong. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, good. Right? Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I can have, I don't know, whatever contact lenses or goggles over my face. Uh, actually, I have a um, Oculus Quest, you know, the VR mm-hmm. gaming system thing. Uh, you would be very mistaken. Like, I mean, it would be to my great detriment if I just walked around the space, <laughs> like what I was seeing in the thing right. is actually real. Yeah. Right? So we know that perception alone isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I've so, watched people get injured with those things yeah. <laughs> because they get yes. so into it and they forget the space they're really in. Yeah. yeah isn't that a, a, an amazing illustration of the importance of reality, right? Yes. And I feel like so many of the cultural issues that are going on that people are really suffering from are from this desire to want to believe an augmented reality that you think is going to fix your problems, right? When in fact, reality still exists and living as if you're in an augmented reality isn't actually going to fix the problem. And we see this in the school system a lot too. And so we're running out of time, but I just really wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, education because we had talked just briefly about that in our last Zoom session. Um, I've been homeschooling five years. Rita's just started this year. I think you guys just started this year as well. Yeah, we're I'm not in saying, year two. Yeah, year two. Okay, and this is this conversation is not about homeschooling is the way, but perhaps we could get like your philosophy of why is your family doing that? Yeah. Um, so I've ever since I started studying philosophy, theology, Christian apologetics, those kinds of things, I've really come to realize that my education has been really there is this deficiency in the humanities side of things. Isn't it funny that we think our every waking moment, but you don't actually take logic until you're in university or college. And even then, only if you're in certain disciplines like philosophy or Mm -hmm. computer science or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just like, why is that? It's something we do day in and day out and we're not, anyway, And then you see social media, right? Because social media is just this shining beacon of human communication excellence. My goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) There there is everywhere. And I just didn't want my kids to contribute to that. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, I, I do have to be careful because, I mean, I myself came through public education and there are some things there that I wouldn't, change for the Mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is also true that public education today is not what it was 20 years ago, 30 years Mm ago. Um, And it seems to be getting worse. And so I just really wanted my kids growing up being classically trained. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And in just where I live, there isn't a classical school. So homeschooling was the only way. And mm-hmm. ever since we started homeschooling, we're finding that, you know, our family dynamics have improved. Uh, like, I, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And we actually have this relationship with our kids. Um, it, and so the, to us, it was important that we raise our kids according to our values. Um, now, you can pick your poison. You can either send your kids to public schools, right? And then, you know, how, how many hours per week do they spend there? Maybe 30 hours, 40 hours, and then they come home. So a- after a typical school day, you might have maybe one or two hours with them before they have to go to bed, basically. Mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they get to spend a lot of time being trained with particular values, secular values at a public school. So then you, when they come home, you actually have to deprogram a lot of that, right? And, mm-hmm. and actually uh, instill your own values in them. And, and are you willing to do that day in and day out through their entire you know, academic career, at least up until grade 12, let's say? Mm-hmm. Or here's the other poison, right? You tr- train them yourself at home. Now, that's going to mm-hmm. take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy, some days are going to be horrible. Other days are going to be much yeah. better. Any homeschooling parent knows all too well what that means. Mm-hmm. And that comes with a certain kind of sacrifice too, right? Mm-hmm. My wife was has been working for a local nonprofit here uh, for a long time. And then she decided to take a step back for the sake of uh, homeschooling our children. So it comes with certain um, uh, sacrifices. So you got to pick your poison, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I I once worked as a pastor at a local church here. Sometimes I, I saw this kind of attitude where the parents would bring their kids to Sunday school expecting that we would fix their kids. Right. And listen, from a pastoral perspective, your kid goes to a secular school and imbibe all these uh, values that are often, not always, but often contrary to their Christian worldview. And they spend 30, 40 hours there. We have access to your children, maybe two, three hours a week if we're lucky and you want us to fix that. Mm-hmm. Further, it is your responsibility as the parents to do that, to train your kids. We're here to help, but we're not just some uh professionals whose services you can access by paying your tithes, mm-hmm. right? So there, there are all kinds of things. So I, I think Fody Bauckham um, once said that, uh, you know, don't be surprised if you send your kids to be educated by the Caesar and then they come home as Romans. Right. And so I just really wanted to make sure that they, my, my kids grew up with the, the values that my wife and I really, really hold to, that, mm-hmm. that we cherish. And so that's why we decided to go um, with homeschooling and especially classical education, teaching them to really learn to think. Um, Mm -hmm. Just one quick plug for classical education. My wife, Mm -hmm. at her work, she interviewed interns from time to time. Mm -hmm. Um, Her experience has been that kids that have been homeschooled were definitely stood out among them and out of those especially classically trained ones they could actually carry on an adult conversation with you 
um, even at such a young age. You know, that was sort of, uh, that's been her experience. Maybe that's not the experience of everyone, mm-hmm. but uh, we've been seeing a marked improvement in sort of the, the level of understanding on our kids' part uh, you know, of how the world works. I mean, they're still young. They think mm-hmm. in their typical nine-year-old and seven-year-old mm-hmm. kind of thinking. But yeah, I, I, I'm just, I've been just very thankful that we have the opportunity uh, to be able to train our kids ourselves. Yeah. No, I feel very much the same way. And my husband is a public school teacher, but since we made the tough decision to homeschool all those years ago, same experience, like it completely changed the family dynamic. Um, it changed the relationship that we have with our kids. It created opportunity for conversations. And I really like the fact that you hit on the fact that humanities and and logic are so neglected, right? And when we think about the conversation that we were having just before talking about education, we were talking about reality, right? And philosophy and the humanities are what brought us to this particular point in actual reality. And so as we're training up our kids, um, they're living their lives right now, but they're going to continue to live lives as adults too. As we're training them up, it's so important that they know from, from whence we came um, but I feel like that's what's really being neglected and causing us to make the same sort of mistakes over and over again. So I would a- agree with your assessment. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, it's been really great. And, you know, interestingly enough for us, maybe this is, again, not a, not everybody's experience, but it actually strengthened our marriage too. Um, mm. Because now what we've done is, you know, much to the third wave feminist chagrin, my <laughs> wife has really taken on the domestic role. Mm. Uh, she takes charge in educating our kids. She's mm-hmm. the one cooking and cleaning, doing laundry, all of the, those things. We used to share those responsibilities a lot more equally. Mm-hmm. But since she has taken on the domestic role, she won't let me touch it. She's like, this is my job. You you have your role. Go do it. Right? Right. Um, well, she sounds amazing. Enough, <laughs> <laughs> she is. I, yeah. A message brought to you by a completely unbiased husband. Um, <laughs> but it has strengthened our marriage. I, it was a little bit unexpected. But then the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. Because when she was working outside of home before, um, not not that I'm against her working outside of home. I, I, I've been really supportive of that. And I've been thankful for that. Mm-hmm. But there are certain... Pros and cons to each approach, I find. So when she was working outside of home, and and I'm and I have my work as well. In a sense, we're doing the same sorts of things, you know, economically productive activity, let's say, mm-hmm. right? But now, what's happening is she has her roles, and I have my roles, and they actually fit together mm-hmm. for the health of this family. And so, I actually need her way more now than I thought I needed her back mm-hmm. when she was working outside of home. Right. And she uh, depends on me to, you know, win the bread, sort mm-hmm. of, sort of. A thing. Yeah. And that, that complementary, right, um, complementarity really brought us closer and has strengthened our marriage. And so, yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean that, you know, I don't help her out with, you know, household chores and whatnot, but, she has really taken on on that side of things. And I've been really thankful for that. And I see the family flourishing 
because of that. And um, she never thought she'd be doing this. Uh, she, it, we say that God has a sense of humor because everything that she said she would never do, she's doing everything. She, she said, <laughs> yes. you know, never marry a guy who's interested in philosophy, history. Uh, I'm never going to marry a pastor. I'm never going to homeschool. <laughs> I'm never going to be a domestic person. Uh, mm-hmm. She's doing all of those things. And uh, really for us, it's been a real blessing. It has strengthened us in every way. Oh, it's really cool. And yeah. God is so good. I mean, that's a really cool story about that. I can absolutely relate to that. So yeah. I appreciated hearing that from a man's perspective. So Yeah, I think you're right. Feminists everywhere are raging. But I think, you know, that's that's a real lived experience that speaks mm-hmm. to the evidence of why this is healthy, right? So yeah, very good. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up. We've kept you for almost an hour and a half. So thank you so much for coming on and let people know a little bit about, again, where they can find your podcast and other things that you're involved in. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about Apologetics Canada, you can go to apologeticscanada.com and you can find a wealth of resources there. Um, We do have a weekly podcast where we say that we give a healthy dose of Christian perspective on cultural issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a weekly podcast. We call it the AC Podcast. You can find it on all your major streaming platforms, uh, Spotify, Google, Apple. Uh, I think we're also on Prime. So check us out there. Um, and yeah, don't, don't hesitate to drop us a line and say hello. Uh, we are active on social media as well, Facebook and Instagram in particular. But these are all different ways that you can reach out to us. That's awesome. Well, thanks again. What a great episode and interview that was with Steve. I think that whenever we talk about things like biodigital, transhumanism, things like that, they're always probably going to be amongst my favorite ever. I don't know why. I just love talking about it so much. I know that you do too. And I'm sure that, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that you guys enjoyed listening to that too, because Steve is so smart and just has a really good way of presenting that information. So do not forget to share this episode, whether you want to do that on social media, or you just want to text it to a friend. These are the kinds of conversations that you should be having with your friends um, for a lot of reasons, but mainly just because it's a lot of fun to have discussions about stuff like this with your friends because it engages your minds a little bit, helps you get to know each other a little bit more um, than just the surface level stuff that we talk about often. So that's a bit of a weird pitch for why you should share this episode, but I really believe it's true. I think once you guys start having conversations about weird stuff like this with your friends, you'll just have a lot, a lot more fun. So (laughs) Cecily and I do. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe that's why we have such a good friendship because we talk about the weirdest things. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But anyway, thanks for listening today. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at boom clap podcast. You can also find Rita and I individually outside the podcast. I'm on Instagram at Cecily.Dickey or on my website, thegracetogrow.com. And you can find me, Rita, at RitaRogersCo.com or RitaRogersCo on Instagram. Thanks for listening. 